Hello, everyone. My name is Kanai Kapadia. I'm the president and chief analyst of KGK and Company. KGK is a strategic management consultancy that helps middle market companies align with their best growth opportunities, overcome their more challenging operational frustrations, and ultimately to grow their earnings. If you're intrigued by the idea of a firm that wants to be a profit center rather than a cost center, for your business. Use the link in the show notes to connect with me. My name is Kanai Kapadia, and on this episode of Hindsight, I'll be talking with Bob Red, who has about as diverse a resume as I have ever seen. He spent roughly the first 20 years of his career in general management and corporate divisional roles at electronics manufacturers. After a short stint at a tooling company, He began the current entrepreneurial phase of his career by starting Fatspan Incorporated. Fatspan is a multi-business holding company under which Bob has been an owner, investor, consultant, CEO, and board member of a range of technology-enabled businesses. Bob, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining. Thank you very much, Kenai. It's good to be here. You've had quite a few experiences over your career, big corporate startup, as an investor, as a leader. But one of the things you can't get from the resume is a person's why. So can you start by walking us through your career and not what you did, but your why and how that changed over time and maybe where it led you well and where it didn't? Yeah. So let's start uh, coming uh, into and out of college. So I had a sort of an altruistic view of solving big scientific problems. And so eventually in my second semester, I settled on not wanting to be a botanist and sit in some tower in some forest somewhere and observe plants and animals that I wanted to do some really basic research. So I moved into chemistry. And having done that, I thought, gee, is research really for me? And so I at the University of Maryland did particle physics research. I was assistant to one of the uh, professors who happened to be world-renowned in particle physics. And so I uh, had a little job of actually charting particles from the linear accelerator looking for the elusive quark. And I saw a lot of very interesting pions, kaons, and all kinds of particles looking for the ultimate low-mass, high-momentum, high-energy particles. Never saw a quark to my chagrin. In that six months of working there in my junior year, I thought, oh my gosh, I don't like research. And so in the last year of my college, I spent time interviewing with a lot of corporations from Union Carbide, various chemical corporations, petrochemical corporations, and realized that, hey, business is a cool thing. How can I apply my chemistry degree as I'm graduating and do so in business. And that's really charted my course ever since. What was your attraction to business? Initially, travel. And I mean that not in just getting in a car or an airplane and going places. As a kid growing up in the Washington, D.C. area, we used to go visit when we were in elementary school and junior high school places like the Wonder Bread Factory. And we would actually be taken around and shown how Wonder Bread is made. And then I pick on Wonder Bread because it made such an impression on me. At the end of the trip, we're getting ready to get on the bus and leave. 
and they give us a little loaf of Wonder Bread. It's like a little kitty Wonder Bread. And I thought, this is the best thing, well, since sliced bread. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's great. That's great. Yeah. So what I enjoyed about it was seeing how business works and seeing how things are made. And that's really, you know, we learn in school, we learn out of school. And you pick a business, and I've, like you said, been a very diverse groups of businesses. And each place I've learned while being able to apply what I've already known and experienced uh, to that point. Yeah. Is it also accurate to say you've seen quite a few different business models through your work? Yeah, absolutely. What is the best business that you've ever been a part of? And it could have been a combination of market circumstances and trends, right? What was the business where you look back and you're like, my gosh, that business just made money? The fact that you said made money almost changes my response. So let me back up and say, and it was early enough in my career that what made a lasting impression on me was my first job. A company called Leeds and Northrop, they were an instrumentation company and as I said, it was a joy. I moved to St. Louis. I was able to, I had to have a sales engineering position and had a territory that was in Illinois and St. Louis city proper and in Paducah, Kentucky. And it was just beautiful because that particular territory had a diversity of businesses from gaseous diffusion used in the, um, electric power and nuclear power industry, all the way to foundries and copper smelting and, and electric power plant, you name it. So I had the, unbeknownst to me, the rare opportunity to be in a field sales position providing instrumentation to a wide swath of industry. And that really made a big impact because I was able to see different organizations as it relates to delivering different kinds of products and services. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So in that regard, it was a tremendous learning experience. It was, it was. And out of there, I got promoted to a position as a regional manager of a brand new product. And that was incredibly impactful. And that's why I pick on Leeds and Northrop to answer your question, because on the one hand, I was tremendously successful in that first job coming out of college, which is monumental in so many ways, right? In hindsight, I really wasn't that special. As I got into the territory and went to visit these companies, they were surprised to see somebody from Leeds and Northrop. And come to find out, the guy before me was an alcoholic and never made any sales calls. And so a bit humiliating in some respects to find out, well, I'm doing so well in a territory and all it took was to show up. And <laughs> <laughs> Having said that, then I got promoted to this position where at 23, I essentially had responsibility for the Western half of the U.S. in this new product. And it was a distributed control system. Our company was well known in the SCADA systems for electric power and, and uh, boiler control and all that sort of thing. Honeywell was already well ahead of the game and we were coming late to the party. And they tapped me to be a to to run this as a 23-year-old. And I was on I moved to Houston. I was on the road all the time. 
And it was weird because at 23, the youngest guy reporting to me was 40 and the oldest guy was 66. Mm -hmm. And I remember I was an abject failure at this and, and we had some product issues and I was a part of, before I got promoted, I was part of the sort of the final sign off on product release. And one of the things that concerned me was, you know, here I am a young guy and I'm put in this position. And it was interesting. Once I was given the job, absolutely everybody that reported to me was trying to essentially not help. And that was tough as a 23-year-old. And, and I understand they're like this snot-nosed kid. Some of the guys actually reporting me were people that were vying for the job. So tremendous animosity in the organization towards me at that time. How did you work through it? Or did you? You know, I did. It was interesting. I have one advocate. He had the uh, district sales management position in St. Louis, I mean, in L.A. And uh, he and I were on the phone and I said, Glenn, yeah, I don't want to moan, but I'm gonna. I just feel like everybody's trying to set me up to fail. And he explained to me then that he said, Bob, you know, you're astute to realize that they all are. And you have to realize that some of these guys are really pissed because you got the job and you weren't on anybody's radar scope and they wanted to know why you got the job. So how I dealt with it is I called a sales meeting on Friday morning in San Francisco and I made everybody fly into San Francisco. So the guy from Chicago, the guy from St. Louis, who used to be my boss and everybody in between, uh, all the way to the West Coast, flew in to San Francisco. Why San Francisco? That's the uh, district's manager that uh, was 66. And I thought in deference to him being the old guy, we would fly into his place. <laughs> okay. And so I sat him down. We had a meeting at, at 10 o'clock and I came in. I was purposely late. And you could hear as you're walking down the hall to the little conference room, a lot of murmuring, as it were. And I came in and I sat down and I looked at them all and I said, you know, I said, here's the deal. Whether you have the same reason or you have your own individual reasons, everybody in this room wants to see me fail. And I said, well, congratulations, you're doing a great job. I said, the sad thing for me is twofold. One is I'm a young guy. I'm going to be able to get a job elsewhere and I'll be fine long term, even though this sucks right now. I said, but on the other hand, really, you, you shouldn't be pissed and you're probably not really pissed at me. You're pissed at the company because they picked me and they picked me because our market is the largest petrochemical and oil refining market in the US. And I happen to have a chemistry degree. And I said, I agree with you. It's really a sad statement of affairs when I seem to be one of the most expert of the whole company in terms of chemical and petrochemical process control. And that's really why they selected me. And I said, so I really sense you're not pissed at me, although I get it, I'm a kid, and none of you are, are anybody that should listen to me, and I can learn from each of you. But you're really taking it out on me and not helping me be successful, which means you're not helping us to be successful. And I left, and I actually went down, and it's the only, you know, it's, it's the, the, the first time that I played Pebble Beach. So I went and played golf that afternoon and flew back home to Houston on Saturday. The one thing I asked before I left is I said, look, if you are going to tank me, that's fine. Just be man enough to call me on Monday and tell me that's really what's going on here. And 
if not, call me Monday and I don't need an apology. Just tell me you're in and let's talk about how we can make this a success. So Monday, my first call was from Glenn and Glenn said, Bob, you're going to get an awful lot of calls today. Hmm. All in the positive. That's quite thoughtful and creative and clever, if I might say, for 23. I can't remember what I was doing at 23. (laughs) It wasn't that smart. I appreciate that. You know, so I'm very interested in your learning experiences. But at the same time, I am also interested in, you know, the business owner perspective on this. And and it's a different perspective when you have a corporate role and have a fairly specific set of responsibilities versus a business owner. Mm -hmm. But before we go too far into the learnings, because we will get there, which of these businesses really impressed you the most from a business model standpoint? If we're talking about it purely from an investor standpoint, even, or from an owner perspective? By far, Schlumberger. Really? Okay. Now, Schlumberger, when you were there, you were there from 1985 to 1990. So can you put in context for us how large the organization was and just your role in the U.S.? Yeah. So I don't know why I keep picking these kind of jobs, but I was in Denver and a headhunter called me and we had actually talked. I'd met him at the airport back when you could do that. And when I was flying into Denver and, and he said, well, what do you want to do next? And I was working for a Finnish mining company in the U.S. So my only international experience was dealing with the parent company, if you will. And my market was in North America. And he said, you know, what's your next step? What is the next thing you'd like to do? And I said, well, I'd like to get international experience. And he said, well, you're talking about Europe or you're talking about Latin America. And I said, well, I've learned Spanish. I speak it horribly. I understand it less. So Latin America would be very interesting to me just from that perspective alone. Europe, yeah, maybe, I I don't know. I just know that, you know, I went from a regional management relationship, which we just talked about a little while ago, and now I'm in a sort of a national North American relationship or structure or responsibility, and I wanted to move into something where it had an international flavor. Well, literally a month later, I get this call to go to this, where there's an opportunity in Grand Island. And I said, I don't want to go to Nebraska, not leaving Denver for Grand Island, Nebraska. And he said, no, no, this is in New York. And I said, oh, that's interesting. The company Schlumberger, I looked up who Schlumberger was, was, didn't fully know what they did, couldn't imagine that they did anything in Western New York went along and we talked about the job and interviewed for it and they picked me. I'm seeing here that you increased revenue 72% and gross margin from 53 to 68%. 53 to 68%, it's meaningful in any business, much less one of this size, right? Well, that's deceptive. (laughs) Okay. That's never happened on a resume before. I'm just going to say it's deceptive because you have to understand When you're dealing with a multinational corporation where the manufacturing is in one place and, if you will, the distribution or sales is in another place, there's this nuance that the corporation plays to make sure that there's enough profit, if you will, the divisional level. But there's also this other thing that things are priced appropriately so you don't pay too much in the way of import tax. 
Mm-hmm. And so you're always playing that fine line as I came to learn. And so, you know, it's one or the other. Either you import something at a high value and pay a large import tax and have a lower profitability, or you import something at a very low cost, have a very low import tax, and you end up paying more at the corporate level from an income tax standpoint. So that was a bit of what was going on there, but the numbers are quite accurate. Okay. Yeah, I mean, transfer pricing is between P&Ls in an international scenario. I'm following you, but to the extent this was authentic improvement in performance, I mean, we started going down the path to talk about Summerjay from a performance standpoint. What was it that made the company perform so well, other than, you know, some financial engineering, which happens in every context? Yeah, sure. So first off, when I came there, my job was to divest of two companies and spend time focused on the main company that I was there to run. So we did that early on. We dumped about $10 million worth of of revenue, two and a half from one of the businesses, which was a non-destructive testing business after Three Mile Island, that business pretty much was dead. And so they wanted me to offload it. What we decided to do is pull it back to its parent, which was in the UK. The other company was, of course, that technology is not very effective anymore, was sort of a masking technology for cockpit lighting in various airplanes and uh, military or commercial. And there was a similar company down in Newark that Schlumberger owned. And we agreed that really it should go there. And the, the people that were core to that business went to New Jersey. And I kept the rest of the people. The quick answer to your question is that our business was primarily driven by OEM business. So original equipment manufacturers. They were taking... These were sensors, they're called LVDTs, linear variable differential transformers. And uh, they're used in very fine measurements like metrology. They're also used in positioning no longer, but in gyros, in uh, downwell kind of oil well kind of uh, tooling and, and those sorts of things. So most of what we sold was to the OEM industry. And one of the things we wanted to look at is how can we grow both top line and how we grow bottom line. And what we figured out was with a bit of instrumentation, we could sell these things one bit at a time at a much higher margin. And that's what we did. And the result was an increase in margin as well as in revenues. Mm -hmm. So you shed two business units, which were underperforming. And did that boost performance alone, just offloading that weight from the P&L? No, not initially. But what it did allow us to do is to focus on our own problem. And the biggest problem we had at the time, all of our components, in fact, we were receiving finished product from the UK. And the problem with that is, without getting into the details, these little uh, measuring devices have various kinds of attenuation and you want it one way and the next guy wants it a different way. And in an OEM environment, we would essentially be shipping over from the UK customer-specific product. And if a customer ran into some financial issues or they made a product change, we had a disaster on our hands. And really, one of the first things that I did when I came in relative to our business unit, and I would recommend this for any 
CEO that's coming into a new business is one area you have to look at really closely early on is your balance sheet because you get one chance. And that one chance early on is you can say, look, you know, we got a lot of crap here. Our balance sheet's in horrible shape. We have a lot of dead inventory and it's just eating capital. We got to write it off and we got to get our balance to healthy. And it's a different conversation if you have that conversation within the first six months than if you have it after two years. Right. Just so I'm not assuming in the latter case, it's because at that point you own the problem, you're part of it. Precisely. Yeah. And so what we did, we had two big problems on our hand. And, you know, it's like any lean exercise. You drain the pool far enough you find out where the rocks are. <laughs> yeah. Right. And so first, I give them credit when they hired me. I was coming in full well knowing I was pissing off a lot of people because I was really getting rid of jobs, wasn't happy about that. And I was sending people places they didn't necessarily want to go or moving the business out. It wasn't a happy time early on. But what it did allow us to do, and there was, they were correct about, was really taking a real hard look at our core business. And we had a lot of upset customers because we had long lead times from the UK. Customers wanted product. And we had tons of it, but none of it that they wanted. And the at the time, our particular division was building and moving to a brand new manufacturing facility. And you can imagine that disruption. So not only did I piss off the local people who were employed at Schlumberger, I did a fine job of really horribly pissing off most of our customers. Yeah. So this is a lot to take on, execute well, right? Who did you rely on? What was your team? Well, it was interesting because most of my team, I have my local team and they were in disarray because, for example, some of the sales team was selling the other kinds of products. You know, we decided to do an evaluation from an HR standpoint, who can transition out of the one marketplace and into the other. I was more interested in fit. And, you know, it's interesting when I walk into an organization, I don't want to digress here too much. I find that you can really, really improve a a culture early on if you can really tap into understanding who's genuine, who really lives for their job or the company, number one. And then number two, I just think this is something where, you know, we all need jobs. So we go interview, we get a job. And we get in a position and we're happy for the job. But maybe that job isn't exactly what floats our boat. We really want to do something else, but this is the thing we got, so we're going to do it. In my experience over the years, I've learned that if you can really spend time and analyze the organization, you can find that Jimmy really, really is good at doing Susie's job and really wants to do it. And Susie's much better at doing Cheryl's job. And... Cheryl would rather do another job, and that person really needs to go. (laughs) Addition by subtraction. If you recognize and you can really understand and map that out early on and begin to position people and move them into places that they really want to do and can excel at to the extent you have that luxury, you can have a tremendous impact on culture in a positive way in a very short period of time. Yeah. Is that what worked as you were reorganizing and 
doing all these changes? Yeah, well, partly. The other part was in moving this company to Newark. This is just dumb luck. I'm not that smart a guy. My boss, who is in the UK, had been an operations guy all his life, sweetest man in the world. And he was a Scotsman. So he was in some business with Slumberjay up near Scotland, and he got this job as you know, the, the division head for this particular division in the UK. And he had to move down to southern England. He had no concept what it meant to travel. And the luck of it was his boss, who was also a Brit, was stationed in New Jersey. And back to your original question about organizationally, why did I pick Schlumberger? It's because Schlumberger believes in a very, very thin management structure. They really want all of the management expertise at the local level, the operational level. So it creates maybe a duplication of HR, duplication of finance and all of that. But they did that and do that because they, in my opinion, rightly figure that the people who are best able to impact positive change in an organization are those who are closest to the customer. And the secondary benefit for Schlumberger is if you have essentially a operating unit that's already fully functioning at every discipline within the organization, whether it's finance, operation, what have you, it's easy to buy and sell those. Mm -hmm. So that's why, for me, Schlumberger was a, I like their structure. I like a real thin, top-level management. In my job, I happen to be three people from the head of Schlumberger and met him a few times when I was in Paris. So I kind of like that as a young guy, and it's a level of autonomy that I enjoy. Yeah. So did you have a full functional team then in the Americas? You had an HR team? Not initially. Uh, we served HR out of the UK, which was quite interesting. And because Schlumberger at the time was, if you will, from an organizational standpoint, why Schlumberger obviously have corporate headquarters in New York and in Paris, their organizational headquarters was in Atlanta. And so the HR component in terms of benefits and that sort of thing was driven out of Atlanta, whereas the, if you will, the direct operational divisional HR was really through me and my cohort in the UK. Okay. What did your immediate team look like as GM? Well, initially, all we had was sales and service, marketing, local marketing. We had no manufacturing. We had shipped those parts of it to the one back to the UK, the non-destructive testing, which we did some in manufacturing here. And we shipped uh, the other manufacturing down to Newark. So I was left with an operation that was basically a warehouse. And that's actually where we started to solve the problem. As I said, when we drained the swamp and the rocks came out, one of the things that the engineering group back in Wagner Regis was the town in, in the UK where the plant was. I said, you know, we have all of this bloody inventory. How do we get rid of it without just throwing it out? And we thought about it and they said, you know what? Maybe what we should be doing is sending you the component parts, that is the wound bobbins and, and the piece parts, and having you do final assembly there. And if we built that capability there, meaning here, 
that would also give you the tools and the tooling refashion the inventory you have into real product. And mm -hmm. while most of the product we had was useless for our OEM market, it became very attractive to rework it for the higher margin, what I call one-offs. And that's what we did. Mm -hmm. Is that the source of a lot of this margin improvement? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, we had greater price pressure at the OEM level. But you were able to make up for it through final assembly in the U.S.? Yeah, we made up for it two places, final assembly in the U.S. and being able to then sell, if you will, to the general ecology market and other types of markets. Yeah. Car industry always wants to squeeze pennies out of every supplier, and they were no different with who were our customers. Right, right. So you left Slumberjay in 1990, which I like to think of as not that long ago, but <laughs> <laughs> it turns out it's, it is. And, and ultimately, you moved on to a more entrepreneurial career, right? Can you talk about that transition? For yourself? Sure. Yeah. Well, it wasn't as elegant and thoughtful as, as perhaps you stated it or the resume makes it out to be. Talking about Schlumberger, the beauty of working for Schlumberger is they demand a lot of your time and you can learn a tremendous amount there. The downside is because they build up their organizations the way they do, they're very easy to bundle and sell off. And what happened was they took five divisions and bundled them to a private equity company out of the UK. And the I had someone visit me in October and said, Bob, don't even know who you are, but we have different plans of integrating this division in the US with other things we've got. We don't have a plan for you. You're out. But because you have all of this industry knowledge in the area, we want to set you up as a distributor for us. And I thought, this is great. So after 90 days, I left Schlumberger and was set up my own company in distribution. And six months later, I got a phone call from the guy and saying, Bob, we we're changing directions again. And you're <laughs> out. <laughs> Wait, so they funded a distributorship? Yes. For you to start a distributorship? Did you get an ownership stake? Well, I owned it. It was I owned it 100%. You fully owned it. Yeah, that was the deal. They were going to get, you know, it was a sweet deal while it lasted. After nine months, it was over. They said after six months, they said, we're going to give you a grace period of three months to transition into other things, find other competitors to sell, but we're pulling the plug. So I had all this inventory that they had moved to me. And now, admittedly, the nice thing is I didn't have to pay for it, but now I had this inventory and had to liquidate it and so forth. So, uh, it was a challenging time in my uh, career. <laughs> yeah. That was my first entrepreneurial experience, albeit sort of being set up by a big brother. And so I learned an awful lot from that experience. Let me make sure I understand this. So they helped you set up a company. They gave you inventory. Then they said, we're done with the inventory. You can offload it however you want and go sell other competitors, which essentially, I mean, it's par for the course for distribution, right? You got to find new product all the time. They just gave you that inventory to dispose of. Pretty much. It's pretty cool, actually. Well, it was a learning experience. Today, I can say it was cool. So learning experience is usually code for that was a difficult situation. I mean, that sounds like 
you know, they pulled the plug in terms of your existing business model, but they left you with, I don't know how much inventory they left you with, but that sounds like a bit of a gift. Yeah, I think that's the right way to put it. No animosity there. I think they, you know, they did right by me in that regard. I think that my vision, because it came in such a short period of time, i.e. within a year, I just wasn't prepared for it. I see what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. As we're talking about some of the things that didn't go quite as planned. Yeah. What was the biggest mistake that, from a business standpoint, that you made during your career? If you had to go back, you'd do it a little bit differently. You know, I would say that it's in that same time period where I was so focused on driving the division. And here I'm talking about Schlumberger and really had just gotten to a point where I felt I had all the resources in place. I had finally gotten to a place myself where I was into the routine. When I first got there, I was in the UK once a month, every month for for 10 months. And I remember going down to Newark and talking to my boss's boss. And and Colin asked me, he said, uh, he says, so Bob, I see you're going over to the UK every month. He says, where else are you going? I said, well, I've been down to Latin America and I'm out the West Coast because that's where some of our suppliers are. And he says, every month? And I said, yeah. And he says, well, when do you decide to stop traveling? And I said, well, when I am in a hotel room and I get up in the morning and I don't know where I am and I have to look out the window to figure out what city am I in, I cancel travel for the next month. And he said, well, how many times has Neil been to the U.S. And since you've been here? And I said, never. And I went back to Buffalo and I get a call from Neil as we normally talk daily. Next day, I get a call. He says, Colin wants me to come to Buffalo and he wants you and me to go around the U.S. to visit some customers. Neil was your boss at the time? Yeah, I was his direct report. Yeah, direct report. Yeah. And after that first trip, Neil goes, God, this is a big country. (laughs) (laughs) I said, yeah, it's it's bigger than Scotland and a lot bigger than just between Scotland and and the UK. We had a great relationship then, but I really was so focused on the task at hand that I wasn't really prepared and I was excited about the distributorship, but I really didn't consider other options. And when the distributor changed and I started talking to the competitors, there just wasn't a fit. And so the only option I had was to, one, liquidate the inventory and to go find something else to do because it just didn't have enough time to establish other supplier relationships. It was a drag. Yeah. So if you had to do it again, what might you have done differently? Would you have created a, a more balanced business plan? that distributorship would you you know as you rehash that in your mind yeah well i think i would have i would have spent more time recognizing the risk of being all in with one supplier that i just thought i would get to great let me get this off the ground i've got such a sweet deal i've got somebody who wants in my mind to, to see me successful it's sort of, let me get this really going, and then I can start to branch out into 
similar products. I wasn't thinking competitive products at the time, similar products that fit sort of the same markets that I was uh, addressing. And I just really wasn't all focused on out of the gate. Great. Got this gig. Let me immediately start cultivating these other supplier relationships just right over my head. Right. That was the big miss. And you know what it was? The mistake, if I really boil it down, I wasn't thinking like a business owner. Transitioning out of a corporate management role into this new business that I owned 100% of, and I thought, you know, you guys should own some. And the private equity company said, no, we, we don't want to own any of it. You own it. Give you this. We'll set you up, essentially. And they're like, okay, great. But I was still thinking like I was working for Schlumberger and not the private equity group. And I wasn't thinking like an entrepreneur. Quite simple. And that's on me. Yeah. That's an eye-opening experience. So you viewed Schlumberger as the, or at least the, the components this PE firm bought, as being like the benefactor and providing the same nurture and support that they would for internal internal business. Yeah. While the relationship clearly had changed in all its dimensions, I hadn't. Right. Right. That's a lesson for, I think, a lot of us. Yeah. Did that affect your, I mean, I can certainly see how it would be really disappointing. And I mean, personally, maybe set you back. Ultimately, did it, uh, how did it shape the rest of your career? Well, in two ways. Actually, one of my uh, biggest disappointments in my career path is came to realize that I'm incredibly good at sort of people management. And in an entrepreneurial environment, that's critical, but as it is with any organization. But I haven't been able to really exercise that in my entrepreneurial pursuits like I would like. Most of my entrepreneurial pursuits since have been positive in terms of wealth creation, but really from small insular organizations. And it's easier to manage those situations. You have less people, less dynamics, but I miss that component. I really do. I miss really being able to develop people and that's why when I had an opportunity to interview for the president of um, uh, Unipunch, it was exciting because a 125-member company, what's interesting there is I didn't get the job, but the owner, it was an independently owned company. He liked the fact that I had an entrepreneurial experience. He said, you know, I'm not going to hire you as the president, but I want to hire you as vice president of sales and marketing. And would you do that? And I said, sure. And it was great because I was able to really influence the organization and deal with an environment was fairly caustic coming in, in terms of human dynamics, human resources. And in particular, it was a hostile union environment. And that was fun and a learning experience. And yeah. Did you manage to cultivate the culture you wanted in that union environment? Yeah, I really did. That was what, you, what was exciting for me is we accomplished a lot. It got to the point where it was a real changed culture. We actually invested. It was a company that w- had a dearth of technology and took on the role of 
information systems as well, and actually spent time having classes with some of the union members on technology to, to help educate them. And just having that that time in sort of a classroom setting, trying to educate people who really uh, were afraid of technology had a great impact. And that was really cool. What was impactful about that? Was it learning together? Was it a feeling of, you know, the companies investing in us? What did that really move the needle? Yeah, it was, uh, holy cow, the company actually is willing to invest in us. And things like understanding the difference between binary versus hexadecimal. I mean, I took it to that level so that they could understand what is the really root level, what it is, how is technology really at the micro level. And these guys just had no concept. And, you know, something as simple as turning a light switch on and off. And I said, okay, you now understand binary theory. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's simpler when you approach it that way was for them. Yeah. Yeah. That's wonderful. I'd like to end on high note and frankly, a point of curiosity for me, for anyone who's been involved in so many different ventures, so many different roles. What was the most exalting moment in across any of these experiences and why? Well, there's two really. Going back to this company, Unipunch, as you can appreciate, data is everything, right? And when I came into that organization, we had the phone was always busy. No one seemed to understand why. So I began collecting data and we had a dearth of systems to do that. So I literally had the receptionists who reported to me to actually keep track of how many calls came in in a day. And we averaged a little over 110 calls. And I realized or noticed that all of our customer service people were out on the shop floor. And so there'd be multiple people on hold, people are calling. And and this is what I walked into besides the caustic uh, union environment. And I wanted to understand why. And the reason why was people were calling because they wanted to know where their stuff was. And our organization didn't know where their stuff was. And interestingly enough, some of the stuff actually had shipped and we didn't know it. Right. Yeah. So over the course of a couple of years and various kinds of uh, discoveries and automation and so forth that that I put in place, I came into work one day and I used to sit out amongst the customer service people because it was just a, a tough environment. And I thought they needed leadership out on the floor and the union guys could come and visit me and the rest of the management team were sort of in their their, their offices along the wall or in the corner. I was the only one kind of sitting out in group. And I remember coming in and I asked one of these customer service managers, I said, Patty, I said, do you hear that? And she says, hear what? I said, it's quiet. I hear the phone ring once in a while. And she says, yeah, Bob. She says, those are all people wanting to order something. And I said, wow. And we had put, I don't want to bore you with the details, but we had put in place a lot of lean measures that, that really I had forged and came to a point where there was no chaos. The union was on board. They were no longer making the same part twice because the shop order was duplicated. They felt like they were really out there to beat the competition and not beat each other up. And the organization as a whole 
could take a breath. They knew where things were in terms of the process for the customer. If the customer actually called, they could see on their computer screen what the status was. Didn't have to go out in the shop floor and try and figure it out. And that silence was just a, uh, it was it was a wonderful moment for me having come into chaos and seeing so many people actually come in and enjoy their jobs and relate to one another the way we ought to relate to each other. Yeah, that harmony, if you will. Yeah, rather than dissident discordance, mm-hmm. it was absolute harmony. And there's no greater joy. And in that story is interesting because another customer service manager came up to me in that conversation. His name was Norm. And he was the first guy I sat down with when I came into the company. And he had all this knowledge and all this experience. But he was kind of in his particular area, part of the reason for the chaos. He just couldn't see beyond it. And I sat him down and I said, Norm, I said, I have to be honest with you. I'm just walking in. I don't know you very well. You clearly know a lot about the business, but I don't know if you're going to make it. And I'm here to tell you that I'm going to do absolutely everything I can, but you need to change you know, your behavior and you need to get on board. And he was an older man. And uh, this was some comes up to me. And obviously, it's years later, he comes when years later, he comes up to me and says, you know, Bob, I've always felt like a mouse in a boa constrictor cage. When I first got here, I just thought you had it in for me. And he said, I did everything that you asked me to. And he said, I have to tell you, you were right. And I no longer fear for my job. That's a special moment because many times we try to help employees turn around and make the right kind of adjustment. And many times they don't. It's always a treat when they do. Yeah, that's really cool. The person who I've enjoyed working with most of my career told me that I absolutely hated working for you. And when we first started, I thought you were the biggest jerk. Her words were more colorful than that. But, you know, we learned so much together and we accomplished so much together. And I'm really glad I I stuck it out and you stuck it out and that sort of thing. So that's wonderful. Yeah, it's wonderful to share that experience. I'm curious about something, and, and this is a this is a point of personal curiosity and selfish curiosity. When companies think about engaging third parties, when you think about engaging third parties, do you also look for that fit? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. How can you not? You want an outsider's perspective. I mean, yeah. Why do it otherwise, right? But what you want as well is you want fit, and you know, fit can mean a lot of things, right? It can be the same faith in data. It can be the same faith in character and integrity or not. I've seen other situations where people are wanting validation, not truth. Yes, which can be worth seeking. Validation and truth are not mutually exclusive. I guess that's where I'm caught up. Oh, well said. Well said. Yeah, that's true. But Absolutely. When you're looking at wanting someone to come take a look at your business, I think in the end, there has to be a fit. You have to say, I really value what I think this person's bringing to my business. And inherent in that, I think, is a commensurate or a coherent sense of humility that I'm willing to listen to this person and their team and what they're going to bring and he or she is going to equally give me the respect of listening and understanding what I bring. 
I think that's just self-determinant, really. Yeah. Bob, it's been wonderful chatting with you and learning from you. I appreciate you sharing as much as you have. And I think everyone's going to enjoy hearing from you on the show. Thank you very much for coming on. Tonight, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Hindsight. If you lead a business or are a student of business, this show is for you. Please subscribe and tune in for a new episode each week. My name is Kanai Kapadia, and this show is produced by KGK and Company, the fast emerging strategic consultancy to middle market businesses. You can find us online at www.kgkcompany.com. That's kgkcompany.com. Have a good one, folks, and I'll talk to you next week.